I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico, and I teach media studies. I'm Dean Detlaff. I'm a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. Well, we got a lot of good stuff in this episode. We're kind of riding out that that labor and union wave just a little bit further. We're gonna uh, we're gonna keep on that that union train. I'm mix, mixing my metaphors here, and it's not good. Off to a bad start. <laughs> keep that union train a rolling. Keep that wave. A, a waving. We're gonna keep on. We're gonna keep on talking <laughs> about unions for this episode, and then for the next one, then we're gonna move on to something different. So uh, it's it's coming, whether you want it to or not. But before we do, we have some very special announcements. They're just the regular ones, really. Uh, if you could uh, subscribe to our podcast on Patreon, Patreon.com/slash The Magnificast, that'd be really awesome of you. Um, yeah, we really appreciate people who support our podcast, and it's been awesome. Um, it helps us. Uh, you know, feel like uh, we can spend more time on this podcast than maybe we actually should. But uh, it's been cool so far. Um, all right. So if you can't subscribe to us on Patreon, then that's fine, too. Uh, but you can give us an iTunes review on the old iTunes. That helps us game the algorithm, get to the top of the charts, uh, get Joel Osteen out of there, and get us on top. So um, if you can't give any money on Patreon, that's chill. But um, a nice iTunes review would be awesome as well. So think about it. Think about it. And while we're doing some advertisements, here's one last one before we get into the real labor union conversation. Uh, I am teaching a class this fall online through ICS where I go to school. Uh, you might remember that I taught a class last spring or winter, uh, depending on how you look at it, <laughs> on uh, the history of Christianity and anti-capitalism. Uh, this time around, though, I'm teaching a more kind of theory or ideas class on Marxism and Christianity. So it's called The Soul of Soulless Conditions, uh, a good spooky line that I took from Karl Marx. And we're going to read a bunch of Marxists talking about Christians and a bunch of uh, Christians talking about Marxism and class struggle. So if that is something that you're into, it costs $180 Canadian or $135 USD for the whole class start to finish. And it starts in just a few weeks, the second week of September. So if you're interested in that, you can find more information at icscanada.edu. Or if you just want to register, you're that pumped, you can email academic-registrar at icscanada.edu. 
Dang, as someone who works in higher ed, I gotta say, that is the best deal on a class I've ever heard. <laughs> That's the lowest tuition for a class. <laughs> I, I'm astounded. It's pretty wild. ICS is a great school, and they want people to learn, and that's a cool commitment that a school should have. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, most schools, uh, you know, they're all after your money, but this one, they're after your brain. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I wish they were after people's money some more because uh, they need it, <laughs> but it's nice <laughs> of them to not be so predatory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. All right. Well, in the previous weeks, we've been investigating unions, labor struggles, and uh, some demystifying of how to organize and what unions do. For me, it's all been really helpful. I've been like really excited about learning all this like cool stuff about unions, and I hope that you have too. Um, a few weeks back, uh, you might remember, uh, it seems like a long time ago now, but it was only a few weeks ago, we started with an episode on unions and Christian higher education and heard about the way precarious labor was affecting higher ed and adjuncts. Um, and then last week, we talked with Dree Alexander about her policy work for Asks Me, which is a union acronym that's extremely hard to pronounce. I'd consider rebranding, but uh, <laughs> they know what they're doing, I guess. Um, and we got even to some more of the like religious angles of organizing as well with Dree. It was awesome. Um, super helpful episode for me and my brain. Um, but now we're going to pivot to investigating how people organize their own workplaces, which is you know the question that I think has been missing from some of the past uh, conversations. Though before we get this far, we thought it'd be cool to do like a good quick recap on some of the big ideas we've already gotten to. Uh, so, Dean, what are the big ideas we've learned about unions so far? Whew, boy, so many big ideas. Uh, who could count? Um, I'll just I'll mention a few. Let's see the episode. Well, what I learned from you, this great episode that you put together <laughs> is uh, this episode on unions and higher ed. Um, I think you did a great job pulling out this fundamental theme that unions aren't just like third parties coming to mess up stuff in your workplace or make things complicated. But unions are just you and your colleagues or your fellow workers deciding uh, what kind of terms you're willing to work under. And I think that's a, a really big, important idea to keep track of. Um, also, incidentally from that episode, but no less uh, fun for me, <laughs> from Brother Ken Homan, we learned that unions are not actually at odds with Jesuit values. So you can put that one in your back pocket. <laughs> you got to whip that one out when uh, an administrator comes around and says, these aren't our values. But actually, this podcast right. says something different. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, man, that was a cool episode. I'm glad that you liked it. I also I feel like I learned so much just making it. Wow, that's how education works, I guess. <laughs> Hands-on, experiential education when I made a podcast. Um, on top of all that, we also learned uh, that unions are a way to address all kinds of inequality in society, not just um, class, but also race and gender. Um, listen, if, if you're interested in the common good, and we know you are, you got to join a union. The Pope says to do it, and we say to do it too. So, <laughs> the Pope uh, says. <laughs> the Pope says it. What can you say? Um, so that's that's an interesting uh, aspect that we got from Dree. Uh, also from Dree, too, we, we learned that unions actually lobby to politicians and do policy work on the behalf of workers. And my brain is still just like, <laughs> I, I'm so excited about that idea. I want I want to do that, too. How do I be that person? I don't know. Um, but it's a cool thing. It's a cool thing that, you know, I didn't know unions did. You think that they're just there organizing you and trying to negotiate your contracts, but they also are um, doing lots of research on laws and talking to politicians. And that's an important work, too. Yeah. Uh, before we move on here, it just occurred to me that this is like our, our weird preemptive uh, closing the details moment. Um, the uh, what we have learned today situation. Yeah. Uh, it's so, good pedagogy. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's good pedagogy. Uh, hopefully, at least that ties in the last couple of episodes, the last few weeks. Uh, and hopefully, also, that provides a good ground or foundation for what we're about to talk about. Uh, because all of that is about what a union could do for you or why they might be good. But what if you don't even have a union in the first place? Uh, how would you go about starting one out? Um, in this episode, we talked to uh, a super great fellow Torontonian, Tanara Yelland, who helped start a union drive at Vice Canada that ended up successfully creating a real-life, actual new union for workers. Uh, Tanara is, is really great, um, as you'll find out for yourself in just a minute, uh, but this is also a good opportunity to point out that she has a great podcast with a couple of friends called Big Rings Pod uh, about sports. So more on that in a minute, uh, but it just feels very important to flag that up front. We don't talk about sports often, so savor this moment where we're recommending this other podcast to you. <laughs> That's where you can go get all your sports news. The conversation that we had with Tanara was a really important one for me, um, not only because the idea of unions can be a lot to get your head around, there's a lot of moving parts, but like even if you do have familiarity with unions, the practical questions and steps aren't always obvious. I think something else that I really have been getting out of these is just kind of demystifying all of like the seemingly magical work of unions. So, you know, like we said in the first episode, it's an important thing, though, for Christians to get our heads around these big ideas, these big magical unions, um, and make them less magical and just organizing um, because like Christians are too often and, you know, probably unknowingly on the side of the bosses far too often. One time is too much. Um, but <laughs> it's hard cause you know, bosses go to church and like, whatever, you probably go to church with some of them. Um, but what if we could think of a Christianity that is not on the side of the bosses, but on the side of the workers? That's something we talked a little bit about last week. Part of that at least starts with finding out how to be on the side of the workers in the first place, in your own situations, in your own uh, communities. And since you're probably uh, a worker yourself listening to this podcast, maybe Tanara's experience will help you too. All right, here's Tanara. This week, we're talking with Tanara Yelland. Uh, hmm. Exactly how to introduce you, I don't know. I'll ask you to introduce yourself in a minute. <laughs> but uh, Matt and I both uh, first met Tanara at a, a panel on organizing game workers in Toronto. Um, and after hearing you talk a little bit about your experience organizing at Vice, we thought you'd be a, a good person to talk to for the series that we're doing on the podcast about unions and what they are and how they work and why people should have them. Uh, so before we get too far into that, uh, maybe you could just introduce yourself a little bit for us. Sure. Um so right now, I'm a grad student at York in Toronto, uh, studying the history of anti-eviction activism during the Depression, and especially the involvement of communists and socialists in that activism. Uh, but before that, and I guess still now, but to a lesser extent, uh, I was a journalist. And I did a lot of labor reporting and a bit of reporting on activism and on uh, housing also. And I was working at Vice Canada in 2014 and 2015, and I was part of the start of the union drive there, which was what led me to being on that panel where we all met. And I'm also a co-host of an exciting new sports podcast called Big Rings, mostly about basketball, but also about other sports. Cool. We'll have to plug that in our show notes. Dean keeps telling me that it's a good podcast for people who don't like uh, basketball even. So that's me. Yeah. Like I, uh, I'm a very fair weather sports fan is probably too generous, but I did get really into the Raptors uh, finals run. 
And so my other two co-hosts who are actually more knowledgeable about sports, I'm sort of like the straight man, but for <laughs> not knowing about sports. <laughs> well, that sounds cool. It works. Yeah. Um, well, all right, let's just kind of dive into um, to why to why you're here, I guess, and talk a little bit about Vice Canada and your experience with the union drive. As I've been kind of like reading more about unions and how people have, um, you know, started started them or like started the struggle, um, every story is different. But what I what I always find really helpful is when people can describe, you know, the, the story of of the union that they were involved in from their perspective. Um, so just like really broadly, I guess, how would you tell the story of the union advice? How did it start? Why did it start? What was your, your place in all of that? Sure. Um, so it was part of sort of the early wave of digital media outlets that started unionizing, um, that started with Gawker in spring or early summer of 2015. And their union drive was very, very public. They announced it um, on their website right away. And they had, like a lot of the workers at Gawker, had the very public debates, like in the comment sections of their own posts about it, about why they thought it was a good or bad idea. And the owner of Gawker, Nick Denton, took a very, I mean, at least publicly, and to my knowledge, privately, took a very hands-off approach to the whole thing. Um, and I think that really kind of catalyzed a lot of the subsequent union drives and it definitely did uh, at Vice Canada where I start, it was me and one other person who sort of started talking about it together later that summer, I think in August. And like the Gawker union drive was basically what made me realize like, oh, if there's things I don't like about where I work, I can start a union. You don't just have to be hired to work at a place that already has one. You can make one. <laughs> um, so that was kind of the catalyst for it. And initially, um, very early group of us that were involved, I think a lot of our issues were sort of, uh, there was a lot of pay discrepancies and some of us were much more poorly or we were paid much less than some other people that we worked with who did similar work. And there was just kind of a lot of uh, uncertainty around like having extra tasks added on to your job that weren't necessarily strictly speaking part of your job description or like um, a lot of the conditions and quality of your workplace really depended on whether you had a manager who basically knew how to be a manager or like was in your corner or not, which obviously happens everywhere, but um, like I think to a greater extent than in some other workplaces. So I think there was um, just like a, a sense in a lot of people of not really having much control over their workplace and wanting to improve that by having a venue for workers to explain what they needed and have a way to make sure that that happened. Yeah, that's great. That's a really good background and gives us a little window, I guess, into how you got started. Uh, so this sounds like maybe a straightforward question or something really obvious. Uh, maybe not, but it's kind of helpful, I think, to demystify some of the the ways that unions start or, or work. I mean, like you were just saying, you know, uh, one day it just occurred like, hey, you don't have to just start at a place that has a union. You could start one yourself. Um, so talk maybe a little bit about that process. How do you go about unionizing your workplace? How do you go from having that thought <laughs> to then actually having a union? 
Yeah, no, I think that's a very good question because like uh, when we started talking about this union, we realized that we had no idea how to do it. And uh, like I, I certainly, and I think the person that I started it with, I think we both had pretty much always been pro union in our lives. Um, so there was no like uh, background of anti-labor sentiment or whatever that was holding us back. But then as soon as we started trying to figure out the nuts and bolts, we were like, oh, what do people do? Um, so what we did basically was make up a short list of people we knew really well who we thought we felt very confident they would also be on board. And then we approached them and talked to them about it and made sure to do that outside of the office. So like go and grab a coffee or meet after work or whatever. And then we would just meet as a group to kind of talk about what are all of our issues at work. And also what do we like about work? Because um, like a lot of other sort of creative industry places, uh, Vice Canada is like one of those places where people get really invested in the fact that they're able to do something that they like as a job, which fair enough. But so I think some of the hesitancy from some people to join the union was um, kind of about that sort of self-identity as less of a worker and more of like a creative class person. Um, but so we would talk a lot about, uh, okay, we like these things about work. Here are some things we don't like. How would being in a union help that? Um, or Or would it help? And then we would kind of, as we brought more people in, we would talk to them about who are some people that they maybe know at work pretty well, who we don't know, and maybe they could talk to them and just sort of like slowly brought in more people. Uh, but it was a lot of like meeting outside of work hours and commiserating and talking about what we might want to do to change things um, before we ended up deciding on two unions um, and meeting with them. And then we picked one. And then after that, we sort of followed the union organizers strategies because they actually have experience doing this. Um, so after that point, we were working very closely with the union, with the Canadian media guild. Uh, but before that, it was basically just a lot of like figuring out who we know, who we think might be on board and then meeting up and talking, which was like, a lot more uh, cathartic and empowering than I was even expecting it to be. Um, so it like, even at that very early stage, there was a, like a real feeling of um, not quite solidarity maybe, but like being in something together. And it was very exciting from like the first moment. Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, something that you just brought up that was um, interesting. And I remember hearing you talk about this a at the panel we were at in Toronto, but um, some of your coworkers thought of themselves, you know, as creatives and not necessarily as workers. Um, and that was kind of, you know, an, an idea that you had to work through with them. Can you tell us a little bit about that and like how that worked out? How, you know, they didn't really think of themselves as workers, but how did you overcome maybe some of those feelings? Yeah, um, I think that's been, that's a problem in a lot of um, like journalism type spaces where uh, like journalism has become a lot more professionalized. It's less of a, sort of like a working class um, trade, which I think it used to be in a lot of ways. So a lot of people who 
go into journalism aren't necessarily like upper class, although a lot of people are, but they sort of see it as like a a professional kind of job that's not for like you wouldn't call yourself a worker because it sounds like you think you're blue collar or something. Um, but I think just through having conversations with people and being like, okay, so you don't really think of yourself as like a worker who needs a union that's going to put restrictions on the company or whatever. You want to have like a flexible work environment, but we have a flexible work environment right now. And like you're working on this documentary and you have to work 12 or 10 hour days while you're shooting then you have to come back to the office the next day to just work your regular eight-hour day and you don't get paid overtime and you don't get any days off. Like, that kind of flexibility is working very well for the company and for the bosses and it doesn't really seem like it's working very well for you. And, like, I think there's a lot of, um, in conjunction with the creative class thing, I think a lot of, of that idea also have an idea of unions as, like, being really strict and rigid and like placing all these onerous um, restrictions on like what workers can do and what the company can do. And so also a big part of those conversations was saying like the union is just us like, and the collective agreement is what we want it to be and what we can make the bosses agree to like the no boss in the world is going to be like, I want to make it so that this person can only press this button for eight hours a day. I want them to like the boss wants you to do everything ideally. So if you also want to be able to do a bunch of different things, then you're going to be able to. So a lot of it was talking about like talking about how um, having like an ability to place some restrictions on what we can be forced to do could be a good thing. Also talking about how the union is and the collective agreement were just going to be what we wanted it to be. There weren't going to be anything else. It wasn't going to be like imported from another place that someone worked at where they had a collective agreement that the worker really didn't like. It's going to be made from scratch by us and our bosses. Yeah, that's great. Um, so Vice Canada has a, a number of different um, people working there, I guess, right? From uh, people writing journalism to people making documentaries and, and filmmakers uh, to people on payroll or, or whatever. Um, how, as you were thinking about how to unionize that place, also, how might you have negotiated those sort of differences among workers and among jobs and people maybe identifying uh, as one kind of part of a creative class and maybe not another or something like that? Like, did those issues sort of come up through the union drive? Uh, they came up a bit like the first several people who were on board with the union drive were all from the editorial department. So all uh, writers and editors, and we sort of had a hard time breaking into the video section of the office, which was much, much larger. Um, and then we finally uh, knew a few people and got them on board and then started to make some headway in there. But like the, the newsroom, at least when I was there, was kind of not siloed off. It's like an open place and there was a lot of collaboration, but um, at least a few of us didn't really know a lot of people in other departments. So it was sort of difficult to bring them in. Um, and it was sort of a matter of 
finding the right person who knew someone and could bring them in. Um, and then there were also very different concerns in different departments, like pay was a concern for a number of people in editorial, whereas uh, for a lot of people in video, that wasn't really an issue because that was sort of the growth area that Vice was prioritizing. So they were willing to pay fairly well, but then the people in the video department were the ones who were um, like working these horrendously long hours and not getting any sort of time off or overtime pay for them, um, except in like specific instances that sort of based on their manager, I think. Uh, so there were there were different concerns, but then it was sort of a matter of talking about them and going, okay, well, at the root of it, it's just like these are different manifestations of exploitation from the boss that are just like the forms that they take for each of us are the forms that best benefits the boss in that situation, but it still comes down to the same root thing. So we're still working together to stop this. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Man, what an interesting, <laughs> I don't know. It just, it's just so cool to hear about how this all works out and the different hurdles. Um, I don't know why I'm so interested in these stories, but I guess I'm just living vicariously through um, all these unionized, these union <laughs> stories I hear. Well, um, on the other side of the union drive, what were like the, some of the immediate gains that um, you all found that you were getting? I mean, you mentioned some just broadly that, you know, y- you are the union and you can kind of like work out what it is that you want, but like what were some of the improvements that you saw maybe immediately? Um, so I actually left, I wasn't working there for, uh, like the most of the public part of the union drive and then the negotiation of the contract. So I didn't really, um, experience the benefits, I guess, but I kept in touch and like, I still worked with the union drive a little bit and then like, obviously followed it very closely. So I know, once they ended up um, negotiating their contract and getting it put in place, uh, they put in a pay floor that I think ended up giving the lowest paid employees um, almost a 50% pay raise, like immediately. I guarantee, of course, that nobody else would be paid less than that ever, which was great. And um, they had like raises for the next few years set in, and uh, I believe they set up a committee to investigate gender-based pay inequities, and they found like um, evidence of it and then worked to mitigate that. So uh, those were some of the immediate material gains. Um, but I would also say like just the experience of working together with your coworkers, um, like the early the early phase where we came together and just kind of commiserated and talked about what we might want to do was one thing, but then like um, working together to get more union cards signed and to develop uh, what you want to prioritize in a collective agreement and fighting for that. And I think while at the end of the negotiation, they had a day where they all wore um, vice union buttons into work, I think. Uh, or stickers or something. So like a very public show of solidarity in the office together all day. And like, um, in addition to the material gains, which are obviously very important part of unionizing, I think the experience of like 
coming together as part of a whole and seeing other people do that and trusting each other and like doing that in service of this like common goal and then seeing common goal come to fruition is like kind of uh, an under undersung aspect of unionizing that is incredibly powerful also. Yeah. Uh, as you, you talked a little bit about that on the panel too. And I remember being really struck by that, you know, that this is like a, a formative experience for people beyond their workplaces, just in their, their daily life. Um, I guess, uh, well, maybe we could, we could pivot a little bit to some of your thoughts on how unionization is, is affecting um, these kinds of industries more broadly. So like last week we talked to somebody who is involved in a union in the U S and we talked a little bit about, you know, trends in, in unionization there. Um, but there's definitely some some sectors that seem to be picking up the pace in unionization or at least trying, and digital media and, and communications workers are, are one of them. Um, so what do you think is going on there? You know, why are all these online magazines or, or platforms unionizing? Do you think it might have to do with something like that? You were just saying, you know, this, uh, this feeling or sense of, of wanting to feel in solidarity with other folks, or are there other conditions that are, are driving that coincidentally, or it's a kind of domino effect? You know, what's your impression of all of that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably a lot of factors at play, um, but a few of them that seem important to me is uh, the fact that it's like such a public-facing industry in the sense that like we obviously write the news. And so like stuff that happens in journalism often gets sort of blown up in proportion because journalists love to write about themselves. So like trends in journalism will be reported on more than they might be if they were in a different industry, um, which like obviously is not always great. But in this case, I think it probably was good because once a few places started unionizing and then it starts getting reported on and then other reporters at other outlets are thinking about it and realizing it can happen. I think that was part of it. Um, but for why it got started in the first place, uh, like I complain a lot about the lack of class consciousness among journalists. And I think that is very much the case, but it's still also true that like asking questions about the world in various, um, parts of the world and looking at how it works is like a core part of what it means to be a journalist. Um, so at a certain point, if you're asking questions about like specific parts of the world, or if you're open to what the answers actually are, <laughs> um, you might start to think about unions and like the fact that people are being exploited by their bosses. So I think there's just sort of like a, like a base level of, um, not necessarily awareness, but like readiness to be politicized uh, in journalism. And then I think to the fact that digital media is where this started and has been happening um, most, I think is a sign that um, like post 2008 has been just profoundly unsettling and radicalizing for a lot of young people because digital media places are like almost entirely staffed by young people. Um, and even if they're like fairly well off, if they're like upper middle class or middle class, a lot of those people still feel or are uh, downwardly mobile. So those are the kind of people I think who 
expect a certain expected a certain thing out of life and either aren't experiencing it or feel like they aren't even if they are and so they maybe feel um like they have a right to demand better um if that makes sense but I think it has been very radicalizing for a lot of those people to experience just like the last 11 years of economic turmoil. And um, yeah, and then also there's just like so much constant churn and movement in journalism and in digital media, especially people getting laid off like wholesale when a media organization goes under or just like a chunk of people laid off and then moving to a different place. So there's a lot of movement and conversation between people working at different places. So I think that maybe has started to spread the good word as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That um, definitely gives me a better understanding of what's going on there for sure. Well, um, you're kind of talking about how awesome it is to unionize and like that kind of great feeling that you get with, you know, working with your colleagues on something that really matters for your life. And I think that's awesome. Um, but I was wondering maybe uh, what your experience was with um, the bosses who try to block unions. Um, you know, in uh, for Vice Canada, the drive started in 2015, and I'm sure you experienced um, some type of uh, <laughs> hesitancy or roadblocks from your bosses. Um so I guess I was wondering if you could kind of just tell us what they were. And then maybe if you've seen like new strategies emerge as other places unionize, you could tell us about those too. Yeah. So uh, like I said, I wasn't in the office for most of the public part of the union drive. So I don't know if there was like a certain um, feeling in the office after the management found out. Um, but from what I understand, they didn't resort to um, – sort of tried and true tactics like bringing in uh, union busting law firms to do meeting for all the staff or anything like that, uh, which is not to say that they were supportive because I definitely got the sense that they were not. But um, from what I remember and from what I know, uh, the management at Vice Canada, I think they were expecting it not to go well. So like they sort of took a hands-off approach of like find out all the facts we encourage you to learn more about this union and then decide what you want and I think they were kind of expecting that people would do that and then be like okay well we don't want this because we're a dynamic flexible digital media workplace or whatever and I think part of the reason for that was that it was fairly early in the um the series of digital media union drives. So it wasn't quite as obviously a thing that workers were like supporting and getting excited about. So I think they kind of felt that the, the energy would be in their favor, which eventually it wasn't. So the vice Canada bosses didn't really do all that much, but they definitely also weren't really on board. Um, but as time has gone on, uh, as I understand it, mostly a lot of bosses at digital media places have kind of stuck to sort of traditional tactics of like um, bringing in law firms or consultants to do like mandatory anti-union meetings with staffers. Um, there's a lot of rhetoric whenever 
a new media place tries to unionize and the bosses aren't on board, which is almost every time. There's a lot of rhetoric about how unions are so great and they're doing so much good stuff for all these workers and it's so wonderful to see, but we just don't need that here because we work together so well and bringing in a union would just like gum up the works and it would make it harder for people to work closely with their managers and we just don't really need that here because we treat you so well and we're so wonderful. Um, which like as time has gone on, also these bosses have gotten like more brazen with how they oppose unions, but they still rely on that kind of rhetoric. So one example that stands out to me is Buzzfeed, which is supposed to be this like really happy, positive place, both in terms of their coverage and also their workplace. They're supposed to have this really positive, happy workplace culture. Um, and yet they stonewalled the union for four or five months, I think, and only recently um, agreed to negotiate with them. And like the whole time it was like, we just feel like we don't need that here because we work with you and we love you and we're all a family. It's like, well, they started the union drive because you laid off like 250 people in one day. So you don't love them. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But yeah, I think it's mostly been like a lot of traditional stuff and a lot of that kind of rhetoric. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, well, you recently wrote uh, an article about other people kind of unionizing in in different industries. Uh, you know, so far we've been talking about people who are, for the most part, hired on at, at a regular job, and and that's where they work, and you know where they rely on their paycheck and that sort of a thing. Uh, but you wrote this article about uni- unionization among food couriers uh, running for Foodora in Toronto, which is a pretty wild story. Um, and this was, you know, earlier in, uh, in the summer and it's kind of really like heated up in even just the last few weeks. But, uh, your article highlights one of these really common threads in contemporary labor struggles, which is how labor gets organized into this precarious form of, of gig work. Um, so what kind of answers do you think that unions have for precarious forms of labor? So not just unionizing a workplace necessarily, but, uh, bringing together people who are, you know, often sort of siloed off from one another just by virtue of seeming like independent contractors or workers or, or whatever it might be. You know, you're just one person on a bicycle picking up food and taking it somewhere else. Um, what do you think unions can sort of speak into that? Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, on the one hand, I think one thing that unions can do is what the Canadian Union of Postal Workers which is organizing Fudora workers has done, which is that um, they're just rejecting the framing that is like the underlying logic of the gig economy, which is that the people who sign up to do those jobs aren't employees of Fudora or Uber or any other company. They're independent contractors because they get to pick their hours and like they have all this freedom or whatever. And like, that's just clearly not the case when you look at how those jobs are structured. And so Cup W, part of their union drive with Fudora is that they are just rejecting that wholesale and they're saying these people are workers and they work for this company and we're gonna treat them that way when we organize them. And so there's like probably a legal battle that needs to be fought around that because the definition and the distinction between employee and contractor is uh, like a legal one. So there's that aspect to it. Um, but in terms of like how to reach 
those workers in that kind of situation where they're so uh, disparate, they don't have like a specific place that they're at. Um, there were a lot of like really interesting strategies that the Fudora workers told me they um, like latched onto. One of them was just like, if you happen to be at a restaurant at the same time as another courier, uh, you can talk to them, but like, that's not going to get everyone. Another one was because they're so distinctive, they're like biking down the street with their giant pink backpack that's carrying all the food. Um, one person was saying that they would bike up and down uh, one of the main, I think it was Spadina. And like every time they saw another pink backpack, they'd bike up and give them a little leaflet and say like, we're unionizing and here's a meeting that we're having and we hope you can come out. Um, so like there's ways where they're sort of hyper visible, even though they're all very spread out, which kind of makes it easier to talk to them. And then just having like um, bike repair workshops and like tax filing workshops and stuff, skills that um, those workers specifically really need um, allowed and then while they were there, they could talk about the union. Um, so there's that kind of stuff. But then in terms of how unions could approach organizing these workers, I think um, like maybe sort of getting out of the mindset that a lot of unions and the labor movement are in now where it's like, we've got this playbook that we've developed over the last several decades and this is how we treat workers and this is how we organize. And this is the set of laws that the bosses and the government and labor have all agreed to uphold. Um, like kind of going back further in the past to like the thirties or the earlier decades when um, labor rights weren't as entrenched and obviously that was bad, but it also meant that there were like a lot of other tactics that were open to labor um, that have been made illegal or just unpalatable now. And I think if unions are willing to do that, then they might start thinking about like um, organizing whole sectors as opposed to just workplaces um, and strategies like that. If they really wanted to get wild, they could start thinking about like sympathy strikes and wildcat strikes and stuff, but those are literally illegal. So that's, I understand why that's not really on the table right now, but like different approaches to thinking about how you look at or, um, group sets of workers, I think might be useful with gig economy workers instead of being like, here's this workplace or this office, um, looking at like whole sectors might be useful. That's a really interesting suggestion. I like that a lot. <laughs> um, finding that like that recall <laughs> from the past, um, and, and what past organizers and activists have done, I think is important. Uh, and we shouldn't overlook it. So I'm into it. That's the historian. in me. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Uh, well, thanks so much for coming on and, and talking to us tomorrow just about your own experience and some thoughts that you have. Uh, I think it's going to be really useful to add to the other sort of things that we've been looking at and our uh, theme that we've been going through in terms of unionization and the labor movement. Um, and uh, also, uh, we look forward to hearing more of your hot basketball takes. Yes. Come to Big Rings Pod for all the basketball takes and stats. I think I set myself up as the resident statistician in the first episode, so 
I'll make up some statistics for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's good. Uh, soon enough, they'll make up some good statistics for you, for the three, you three hosts. <laughs> exactly. Assists, rebounds. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, just like we said at the top of the episode, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. You can also give us a really great iTunes review. That would help us out a ton. Uh, if you're interested in this class that I'm teaching on Marxism and Christianity, you can find more about that at icscanada.edu. Uh, let's see. As always, our music is by Amoria Armstrong in the beginning and by the Illogical Spoon at the end. Thanks, and we'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church We'll meet down by the riverside There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no dam between us and our Lord Jackson, keep your hoods up Keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late, oh don't mind, a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon.